Well, we're continuing a series um, called Public Faith. and We're looking at what it means to, to go public with our faith in this world. And we've been looking at uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, this very famous encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. And, uh, and this week we continue with this story. This week's passage comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 27 through 38. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Dear ones, this is God's word. Well, good morning, everybody. So, as Eric said, we have been in this series called Public Faith. Um, and to kick it off, I want to quote somebody. Have you guys ever heard of the uh, comedy magician duo Penn and Teller? Everybody's, they've been around for, they're kind of old now. Well, Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller is a known atheist, and he once said this. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Well, as like we said, we're in the series Public Faith, and one of the things that we've said a number of times is that there's kind of a narrative in our culture that says faith is this kind of private thing, and you should keep it, if it's it's fine for you, but you should keep it private, and then don't bring it out into the public, right? You know, things like politics, that's public discourse, but faith is private. But here we have an atheist saying, that's baloney. If, if we really believe what we say we believe, that there is really abundant, eternal life in Jesus, 
then the only thing that makes any moral, rational sense is that we would share it with everybody we can, right? But I think if we went around the room and asked, I think many of us would say, yeah, I don't do that very often, if ever. Why don't we? What's stopping us from sharing the good news of Jesus with other people? Well, Jesus actually addresses that very question with his disciples in our passage this morning. And what Jesus shows us is that the, that the reason that we so often fail to share the good news of Jesus with other people is that we're missing something. What are we missing? Well, Jesus tells us that we're missing three things. If you're a person who likes to take notes, you're going to want to write these three things down. Okay? Here we go. Three things that we're missing. We're missing the food. We're missing the fields. And we're missing the focus. You guys like alliteration? I like alliteration. We're missing the food, the fields, and the focus. All right? So first off, the food. What's this food that we're missing? Well, let's first set the scene, right? So as we just established, Jesus, in John chapter 4, he has this exchange with the Samaritan woman at the well. And there was every reason in the world for Jesus to not talk to this woman. Right? She had all of these social strikes against her. Right? One, she's a woman in a patriarchal culture where women were viewed as second-class citizens. Two, she's a Samaritan. And in the Jewish mind, Samaritans were the wrong race, they're the wrong religion, and they were political enemies. On top of that, this woman is a social pariah. She was divorced five times. And so social you know, norms at the time would have said it would have been scandalous and wrong for Jesus to talk to this woman, especially alone, but he does. He breaks all the social norms and talks to this woman, and he even reveals to her that he's the Messiah. And then so she, in excitement, goes off to tell the other Samaritans in the village, right? And then what we're going to actually see next week is that when she does that, revival breaks out in town and everybody believes in Jesus. <laughs> Look forward to that. But right here in the middle of all that, the disciples come back. They had been sent off to get lunch. And they show up, and they see Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman, and they are flabbergasted. They don't say anything. I think they're probably disciples were polite southerners like me. They didn't say anything, but they sure were thinking it. And what, did, what was their assumption? What was going on? Well, they just assumed the only logical explanation for why Jesus would be talking to this woman is he must have been standing out in the hot Mediterranean sun a little too long, and it's been a little too long since his last meal, right? So they say, Rabbi, Rabbi, just come here. Come here, come here. You, you need to eat something because clearly you're not thinking right. You've, you've lost it. Okay, come on. You need to eat. But Jesus rebukes their assumption. And he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And of course, this is very typical of the disciples. They're, they kind of hear him say that and they look at each other and they're like, did somebody slip him a Luna bar when we weren't looking? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This, he's not talking about physical food. So he explains, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, God the Father, and to accomplish his work. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? He is saying that the thing that is life-sustaining, that nourishes his soul, is obedience to the will of God. 
Now, that runs against the very grain of how we typically think, doesn't it? See, we tend to think obedience is a means to an end, right? We think that I I obey God's will so that I can get the thing that gives me life-sustaining joy, the thing that nourishes my soul, right? We use obedience to get that. And actually, this is a very, very common idea, especially in American Christianity. Whether you've been a Christian for a long time, whether you, are, you have been a Christian for a couple of days, or even if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've probably at some point bumped into the idea, either explicitly or implicitly, that there's this bargain going on with God. That if you obey, if you are a good little Christian boy or girl, if you read your Bible, if you pray, if you go to church on Sunday, if you go to Bible study, if you don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, or date women that do, if you keep yourself sexually chaste until marriage, if you give 10% of your income to the church, if you follow these biblical principles for raising your children, right? If you obey God's will, right, that you, he will bless you. He will give you the health, the wealth, the wisdom that you long for. He will give you the sexy Christian spouse, the cushy bank account. He will give you the hashtag blessed Instagrammable life that we all long for. You'll have, you'll have well-adjusted, smart, God-fearing children who obey you all the time, right? Okay, let me say it this way. Has anybody never bumped into this idea ever in their life? Okay, nobody's raising their hand. Good. All right, we've all bumped into this, right? And, we, and like I said, this is very common in American Christianity, and it's so much so, we, we actually have little pet verses that we like to use, that we throw at it, right? Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Or Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these things will be added to you, right? And we, we kind of slap that verse on there and go, see, it just makes sense. Do, you know, if you obey, God's going to give you the stuff you want. The problem is, one, we've taken those verses completely out of the context of the bigger point of the passages. Two, we completely ignore big parts of the Bible that directly contradict that idea. Things like the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've never read it, you should. Or Jesus himself saying, in this life, you will have trouble and persecution and suffering. But moreover, it completely misses the, really the foundational biblical point that Jesus is drawing out here, that obedience is not a means to an end. Obedience is the end. Obedience is not something that we use in order to get the, the food that our souls are longing for. Rather, the soul-sustaining, life-giving joy that we're longing for is found in obedience itself. Whether or not there's a blessing on the other side. Now, I can tell by the look on a lot of your faces, you don't believe me. (laughs) I told you it runs against the grain of how we think. The the best illustration that I have to give you, to, to show you that this is true, is this. Has anybody ever trained for something? Maybe like for a marathon, or trained musically, like you learned an instrument, or you learned a craft, like pottery, or, you know, you did creative writing, you wanted to write a novel, or, you know, like you look, took up woodworking or something. You wanted to, like, build your own house, right? Anybody ever train for something like that? Yeah, I think a lot of us probably have. If you've ever done that, you've had this experience, and you'll know what I'm talking about. 
there's something that happens. You decide, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going I'm to run the marathon. I'm going to play Carnegie Hall. I'm going to build that house, right? And you set out, and you, and you start going through this program. And you have to, you know, if you're, it's a marathon, you have to get up every day, and you have to run, right? Or if you're, if you're learning a musical instrument, you have to practice every day, and you do it. And there comes a point where you kind of get up, and you go, I don't want to do it today, right? But you do it anyway, because you're like, you, I, I committed to doing this thing. And that somewhere along the way, you keep doing that. You keep submitting yourself to this training program. And at some point, it's like a switch gets flipped. Where suddenly, you wake up one day, and the thought of not running isn't an option. The thought of not playing the instrument is no longer like a viable option in your brain. And regardless of whether there's a marathon coming up, or whether you actually are going to perform, or whether you're actually planning out your next novella that you're going to write, regardless of whatever the goal is, you just keep doing the thing. Because now it's who you are. You're a runner. You are a writer. You're a musician. That's just who you are now. If you've had that experience, you have experienced the joy of obedience. See, friends, God invented the idea of human beings, so he knows how human life works best. So when we obey his will, and let's be clear, there is a difference between obeying God's will and the will of human beings who pretend to speak for him. That's another sermon for another day. Okay? There is a difference there. But when we submit ourselves in obedience to the will of God, what we are not submitting ourselves to a list of random rules. What we are doing is actually acting out, training ourselves to be our true, authentic selves. When we obey God, we discover our true self. And there's joy there. Even if there's not a nice little hashtag Instagrammable blessing on the other side. Now you might be like, wait, weren't we talking about evangelism? Why? Okay, let me veer it back to the topic at hand. Some of you, there was a time when you shared your faith in Jesus a lot. Maybe you even went on one of those like evangelistic retreats. Anybody do that in college where you and your friends like walked the beaches together for a week and just told people about Jesus, <laughs> right? Anybody do that? I, I never did that. Um, <clears throat> but you stopped doing that. You stopped sharing. Maybe the reason is that somewhere along the way, life didn't turn out the way you thought it would. You're not as healthy, wealthy, and wise as you thought you'd be. You're not as happy as you thought you'd be. And so now it feels like you feel like a sham. Like, you know, what what am I going to tell people? Like, come, believe in Jesus and be like me and and be miserable. Or like, hey, believe in Jesus. He'll make your life great. Like he didn't do mine. But when we think that way, when we start thinking that way we are missing what jesus is telling us here that we obey not for some arbitrary promised blessing on the other side but we obey and in obedience we find the life giving soul nourishing joy that we're looking for what are we missing we're missing the food of obedience obedience is not the means to an end it is the end itself but that's not all we're missing. We're also missing the fields. All right, what are, what are the fields? What are we talking about? Well, Jesus goes on uh, after saying, I have, you know, I have food that you don't know about. He goes on to say, now, don't you say, 
Yet there are, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Meaning they're ripe, ready to be picked. What's Jesus getting on about here? Well, most scholars that I've looked at agree that it se- what seems pretty evident is that Jesus is quoting a common proverbial saying of the day. You know, we have our proverbial sayings, don't we? You know, uh, don't count your chickens before they hatch. Very good, right? To a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail. Very good. See, right? We, we, we've got these sayings. So this was a saying in Jesus' day. And what is it conveying? Well, it seems to be conveying confidence and patience in your work, right? The, kind of, the idea being like, okay, look, you've tilled the ground, you've planted the seeds, you've watered. Now, there are yet four months until the harvest, but be patient, wait, you're going to get the fruit of your labor, okay? But Jesus, and that, that makes, right, that seems like there's some wisdom in that saying, but Jesus says, you know, that saying doesn't apply here. It doesn't apply here. And then he says for them to look. What were they looking at? What was Jesus saying to look at? For the longest time, I always thought Jesus was just saying like, look, listen. But actually, really great commentators point this out. When Jesus says look, he was actually saying, look. Because just a few verses earlier, we saw that there is an entire town of Samaritans coming up the hill to meet him. You see, friends, the disciples had a plan. They had it all figured out in their heads, right? And their plan, their agenda, did not include a stint in Samaria. And Jesus said, we have to go through Samaria. So they said, okay, fine. Well, the best case scenario is that we just stop for a quick bite to eat and then we get on through to Israel because these heathen Samaritans will never receive Jesus as the Messiah. They'll never believe. They're the wrong race. They're the wrong religion. They're the wrong political affiliations. So we just have to get lunch and get through. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're not looking. Look! The harvest is here. Guys, this really got me this week. I feel like such a hypocrite right now. We are just like the disciples. We have everything figured out, don't we? We've got our plans. We've got our agendas. We've got our assumptions that, okay, these are going to be the kinds of people who are going to believe in Jesus. And these are the people who are not. And we're going to convince these people by doing these certain things. And so we get so wrapped up in our own thinking that we fail to look that there are people all around us who are waiting to meet Jesus. All they need is a witness. Someone to say, come meet a man. A man who changed my life. But we don't see them. And can we be honest, a lot of times the reason that we don't see them is because they're not the kind of people we like to associate with. They're the wrong race. They're the wrong religion. They're the wrong gender. They look funny. They smell funny. They talk funny. They don't vote right. They don't talk right or think right. They don't act right. And otherwise, whatever they're about just makes me, doesn't make me feel good about me. And so I avoid them. And I'm not looking but there are people 
Jesus tells us here, and he tells us again and again in his word, that there are people of every size and every shape and every color and every tribe and every language and every culture on planet Earth who are ready to meet their Messiah. If we would have eyes to see. What are we missing that keeps us from sharing the good news of Jesus with others? We're missing the food of obedience. The life-sustaining, soul-nourishing joy that we're longing for is not found in some arbitrary blessing on the other side. It's found in the act of obedience itself. And we're missing the fields, the people right in front of us in our schools, at our work, at, in our neighborhoods, in those, the stores that we shop in, in the restaurants we eat in, the people who are right in front of us who are ready to meet their Messiah if we would have eyes to see. What's the last thing that we're missing? We're missing the focus. Now, this is really kind of ties it all together, okay? Jesus says we're missing the focus. What, what focus do I mean? What do I, what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus takes this common proverbial saying, and he contrasts it, right? He says, you know, you say, you had four months and then the harvest, and he says, no, look, the harvest is here. And then he says, goes on to say, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. What's, what's he mean by that? Friends, what Jesus is saying is, you see, disciples, your problem is that you think the story started when you showed up. You, right? That's what, the, that's what the saying is getting at. You think that this is your project, that you tilled the ground, you planted the seeds, you watered, and then you're going to reap the harvest, and that it is all dependent and is all your work, your project, but it's not. He's, Jesus is like, you're about to go reap from what others have labored for. And that was immediately true, right? Those Samaritans were not coming up to meet Jesus because of the disciples. They were coming because of the witness of the woman and the conversation she had with Jesus. And more than that, the Samaritan village had had years and years and years of thinking about the promises of God in his word through his prophets that said, there is a day coming when I will send my Messiah, the one who's going to make everything right, who's going to fix all that's broken, who's going to rescue my people. And they had been waiting for that. So Jesus is saying, guys, the, the, you're, the story didn't start with you. The story started way before you showed up. And actually, the story continues on after you're gone. Your life isn't the beginning and end of the story. Your life is one chapter of a much bigger, grand narrative that God is writing. But see, like the disciples, we have this tendency to think, it's about me right? People come to Jesus because I'm clever and intelligent. I have the right answers because I've got the right branding, because we've got cool music, right? We're the right kind of Christians, or we've got the right kind of programs, or we've got the right kind of evangelistic techniques and methodologies. We've got it all figured out, right? We think it, that's the reason people come to Jesus because of me and my efforts, but people don't come to Jesus because of me or because of you. People come to Jesus because of who he is, And anytime we let the focus drift off of Jesus onto us, what we end up selling is not a witness to who Jesus is. What we end up is trying to sell people on how great we are. But it never works. Not for very long. 
So, and look, I get some of you might be thinking, well, that's not very fair. It's all about, like, the focus is all about Jesus. Where do I fit into all this? But hear me when I say this is good news. The fact that you're not the beginning and the ending of this thing, that you're not the focus of the story, that's good news. Because when we let Jesus be the focus, Jesus, the one who ate the food of obedience in a way that you and I never could, he ate it every day of his life perfectly. And he accomplished the work of him who sent him on the cross, that obedience, submission to God's will, led Jesus to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus let himself be disassociated from God the Father. Jesus was written out of God's story so that you and me, our stories could be written back in. Jesus went to the cross so that you and me, who refused to eat the food of obedience, could again feast on the abundant life that God so desperately wants us to have. And you see, friends, Jesus, because of what he did and who he is, he's the only one who actually has the power to change the human heart. We can't do that. So you know what that means? You can relax. It's not up to you. You don't have to worry about what you're going to say is going to really convince that person to believe in Jesus, whether you're, how you talk or what you're going to say is going to work. You, that's not your responsibility because it's not your project. You have no idea. Anybody that you talk to, you, don't, you have no idea. Maybe God's going to use you just to till the ground of their heart, just kind of soften something up, and that years later, God's going to do something with that. Or maybe he's going to use you just to plant a little seed. You don't know. Or maybe you say something and you think that was just the dumbest thing. I don't know if that didn't even make sense. And so somehow that person, because of all the work for years that God has been doing in their life, they're like, yes, I want to meet Jesus. Praise God. You don't have to worry about where you are in the process. All you have to worry about is, am I being faithful and obedient to what God's called me to? To witness So we can relax and we can let Jesus be the focus because it's his project. It's not ours. What are we missing? We're missing the food of obedience, right? Obedience is not the means to the end. Obedience is the end. We're missing the fields that are in front of us. There are people of every race, religion, culture, and every stripe, size and stripe and uh, all kinds of people right in front of us who are ready to meet Jesus. And the reason there may be there is because the focus is Jesus himself. And he's the one who works. And, and he's invited us into his grand story of redemption. And we get to play a part. How cool is that? We, he doesn't need us, but he invites us in. Let me pray. Father, thank you so, so much that not because of anything that we do, not because of any goodness on our part or, how, or cleverness or intelligence on our part, but simply because of your mercy, you like to use people like us to accomplish your work, to bring people of all kinds to yourself into restored relationship. God, give us eyes to see. 
Help us to step down out of the focus and let you, Lord Jesus, take the center, take the focus so that we can relax and we can have confidence and joy and just trust you in the process. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have already promised us how this story ends and it ends with heaven and earth being made new and that people of every tribe, nation, and tongue praising you for eternity. You are worthy of that praise and it's in your name I pray, amen.